Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Genesis chapter 3, as we read verses 8 through 15. Uh, This morning we will begin a series that's going to put our John series on hold for a few weeks. And this series that we're beginning is called Looking Forward to a Savior. And so over the next four weeks, as we lead towards Christmas, we will be following the lead of the Old Testament saints, uh, looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the earliest scriptural prediction that we have of a coming Savior. This is a prediction that's as old as the human race itself. And so let's stand together as we read. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? As we begin in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now the word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you set our gaze on Christ today? Set our gaze on the cross. Show us our need and show us the richness of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back when we were Going through our our series in the book of Judges in the evenings, at one point we came to an episode in the life of Gideon. And at this part in the life of Gideon, if you recall, God called Gideon to lead the people of Israel into battle against Midian. But God also in this moment knows that Gideon is actually quite terrified. He's quite scared. And so God makes the decision that he's going to fortify Gideon for this battle And the way he does it is very interesting. So he tells Gideon the night before the battle, go down into the enemy camp with your servant. And then this is what God says about what he's going to hear. He says, you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And so what happens in the the narrative? Gideon goes down to the camp And he takes his servant, and sure enough, as he's listening in to the different soldiers, he hears this man speaking to another soldier, and and he tells this other fellow that he had a terrible dream, that Gideon and all of his forces were going to smash them the next day, and that they were going to be completely defeated. And as Gideon is listening, he hears 
the trembling of this man's voice. He hears that his fear is real. And when he hears this this dream that he has had, he realizes that in the mind of God, the judgment has already been pronounced against his enemy. And so the text tells us as soon as he hears this dream, it says Gideon heard the telling of the dream. And as soon as he heard it, he worshiped. This is from Judges chapter 7 at some point if you want to look at that. But as soon as he gets back to the camp, he says to everyone, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So when God does this, when God lets Gideon listen in on this word of judgment that he's giving to this basically nobody in Midian's army, when he lets him listen in on this, he is being exceedingly kind. He didn't have to tell this to Gideon at all because he had already told Gideon you're going to go into battle and you're going to defeat them and so he's already told him this over and over again but he knows Gideon's disposition he's the sort of person to question God's promises over and over again and so God tells him the good news and he he does it because he knows it's going to strengthen Gideon for what lies ahead in his life and what lies ahead especially the next day This is what's so interesting to me. God delivers the good news that Gideon needs to hear, and he does it in the shape of a judgment. God makes Gideon strong for battle by letting him overhear the truth that this enemy Gideon is about to do battle with is already defeated in the mind of God. He hears an overheard message of good news, and that makes him strong for battle. And as we we look at this passage in Genesis this morning, I wonder if it occurs to you that God does something similar here for Adam and Eve that, that he does for Gideon. Because think about this. Adam and Eve find themselves in a terrible position. They're under the judgment of God. But the first word of judgment that they hear isn't against them. It's against the serpent. And contained in that judgment of the serpent is the seed of what we know as the gospel. The best news human beings have ever heard or ever will hear. You see, it turns out the best news that human beings ever heard came to us in the form of a judgment. And even more intriguing, it wasn't delivered to us. It was not a judgment for Adam and Eve. It was delivered to our enemies. So the, so the first time the gospel was preached, it was an overheard judgment meant for somebody else. And so here we are this morning. We're sort of like Gideon, crouching, listening. What is God saying to our enemy? What is he telling our enemy that he wants us to hear? This morning, as we find ourselves looking forward to Christ, looking forward to his coming, in a sense, let's put ourselves in the position of Adam and Eve um, as they find themselves in this dark, vulnerable moment. God does this. He delivers them. He gives them these promises, and he uses three bruisings to accomplish these promises. We have a bruised relationship. We have a bruised serpent, and we have a bruised Savior. Three bruising. So here's my hope. This is my hope for us. To overhear this judgment that God speaks to the serpent so that we can be fortified and strengthened for the Christian life. Just like Gideon was fortified and strengthened before he went into battle. What does he do? He overhears God's judgment against his enemy and it makes him strong. So let's overhear God's judgment against our enemy, the serpent, 
And let's let that make us strong as well. So first, this morning, we have a bruised relationship. Consider what has just happened right before our actual reading in the text this morning. God has placed this unfallen man and woman together in this garden. He's given them everything that they need. He's given them food. He's given them provision. He's given them water. He's given them companionship. Everything that they could possibly need. And yet the serpent comes with all of his, his wiles and his schemes and he, he speaks to Eve and he asks her that deadly question, did God really say? And then he twists what God really said. He actually adds to what God said. He actually gives her, he suggests that God gave her a command that God never gave. And then Eve responds by adding to that command and saying, well, he didn't just tell us that we couldn't have any tree. He said we couldn't have anything from this specific tree. He said we shouldn't even touch it. And so the way that God, that, that Satan actually works his way into humanity and actually ruins us is by adding extra commands and burdens that he had never given in the first place, that God had never given in the first place. And so he convinces Eve, God is not on your side. God is selfish. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have knowledge like him. He wants to hoard it for himself. He is selfish and all he cares about is himself. He wants to hold you back. He wants to restrict you. And eventually she believes this lie. And she begins to believe that, no, this fruit isn't harmful to me. This fruit won't kill me. This fruit is good for me. God is holding back his best for me. And so Eve takes the fruit and she shares the fruit with Adam. And immediately they both realize their nakedness. And on our passage opens with this entrance of God into the garden. And when he enters, we immediately start to see the consequences of this sin. We see two bruised relationships here. The first bruised relationship that we see is between man and God. It's vertical. It's between us and God. See, how does the passage begin? They have committed this sin. They've eaten the forbidden tree. uh, But it begins with Adam and Eve actually hiding themselves from God's presence. They feel shame now. They didn't feel shame before. They didn't know what the experience of shame was like. In chapter 2, it says Adam and Eve were naked and they did not feel ashamed. David Atkinson gives a pretty decent definition of shame. He says, shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being, you know something is wrong with you. That's shame. Here's the thing. They, they didn't feel that before they sinned. They only feel that, felt it after they sinned and knew that they had done something wrong. So they feel shame. Why? Because they violated the command of God. They violated the trust of God. And so they, they flee from him. They can't bear to be seen in his presence. They can't stand to be near him at all before they, they would when God would enter the garden they would meet with him they would enjoy the cool of the day together they they dwelt together in, in fellowship now we don't know how long he, they knew fellowship with God the the scripture is so unclear on this they could have been in his presence for a hundred years or they could have been in his presence for a hundred days or even one day. We just simply don't know how much time elapsed during the time in the garden before the fall. 
But now what are they doing? Are they still dwelling with him in relationship? No, they're cowering in the trees and bushes, right? Anything but God, anyone but him. Why? Their their sin isn't just objectively a sin. They've violated a relationship. They've broken a trust. They've broken this relationship. Um, If you've ever done something to show someone else in your life that you don't trust them anymore, you perhaps know what that's like. If you've ever uh, been told by somebody that something is true and then you act against them and say, well, I have to check anyway. Um, that's a break of a relationship. And that's what they do here. They break that trust. They break that relationship. They know they deserve to be punished now. They know that the thing that was supposed to happen if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is supposed to take place. Death is now coming for them. They know that they will find out what death is because he told them they would die if they ate of the fruit. You see what this is? This is a break of the relationship. It's the first time... And definitely not the last time that man decides to try and face and solve his own problems by his own strength without God. Why is he going to do this? Why is he going to try to do this? Why will we try to do this? Because our relationship with him is broken. Our relationship is bruised. Here's another bruised relationship. The one between Adam and Eve. Look at this. If we looked later in the passage, past verse 15 even, we would see more of what God says to Eve as part of his judgment. But if we just stay in verses 8 to 15, we can already see the bruising of the relationship between husband and wife here. See, what happens when God asks them who told them they were naked? The first words out of Adam's mouth are not an answer to God's question. They are words of blame. See, God didn't ask him who gave him the fruit. He asked him who told him he was naked. And that's not the same thing. So the correct answer that Adam should have given should have been, I just knew because I ate the fruit that I wasn't supposed to eat. That was supposed to be the answer that Adam gave. That's the true answer. Parents run into this all the time with their kids, right? Who hit little Jimmy here? You look at Susie and say, Susie, who hit little Jimmy? And Susie says, he hit me first, right? Not me. It's he hit me first. Um, You say, well, that's not what I asked. Who hit him? And then maybe she says something like, well, he called me a name. See, kids don't just want to give the answer if it implicates them, right? If it implicates me, I can't answer the question. So I have to answer a different question that somebody didn't ask. Um, It's blame passing. And we know it very well in uh, everyday life. We know it very well. It's one of the first things we did after the fall. It is instinctive in children to blame pass. And it is because it is born into us. It is the first thing that our parents did after they fell into sin. And Adam does that here. Who told you that you were naked? The woman you gave me gave me the fruit. He doesn't answer the question, right? He deflects. And he blames, and he doesn't just blame her, but look at, there's, a, there's, this, there's a, a blasphemy in how he answers it, right? He, he says, the woman you gave me. He's, he's pushing the blame off of her even, and he's actually pushing ultimate blame onto God. He says, I'm doubly not at fault. See, you imposed this woman on me. She's the reason this happened, and really, you're the reason this happened, God. Already, 
Adam's relationship to Eve is bruised and their relationship to God is damaged. And so because of that, the way that they're relating to God is damaging the way they're relating to each other. He's lashing out at God. He's lashing out at those around him. Every one of us who lives in this world knows that our neighbors are hard to get along with. Now, I don't mean just our literal physical neighbors around our house, but I mean everybody that we're around. People are hard to get along with. We have, we have strained relationships even with people that we basically like. This, would, this world would be really great if you think about it, if there were no more sinners in it, right? You could just imagine how much better traffic would be if only sinless people were left in the world. Um, how empty the freeways would be and all the houses and everything actually. Um, we live together and we can barely stand it, right? The things that, that, that separate us from each other aren't even the biggest things in the world. They're not worldview problems. They're usually the small nitpicky things, right? In our families, uh, the conflict is usually not over the big questions. It's usually over the little things. Who left the toilet seat up? Um, who didn't put, who put the empty milk jug back in the refrigerator, right? And you have the silliest fights over the smallest things. Do you know why that is? That's because we are sinners whose relationships with each other are so damaged that we can't even settle the tiniest little fights. Um, we can barely uh, stand living with people even when we like them, right? Being married to a sinner is no walk in the park. You can ask my wife after the service. She'll tell you everything. Um, our relationship with, with God was broken by sin. Our relationship with each other is broken by sin. And this, this dark episode, as Adam and Eve cower in the bushes, hiding from the Creator, it sets the stage for everything God is going to do next. If we don't understand what has happened to Adam and God and Adam and Eve, we will not understand the rest of the Bible all the way to the book of Revelation. You see, this bruised relationship gets us ready for everything else that follows in this book. Because Adam and Eve have been separated from each other, and they've been separated from God, and they need God to take action to remedy things. So first we have bruised relationships. And the second this morning, though, we have a bruised serpent. In verse 14, God turns his attention to the serpent, and he, and he makes a two-part promise, and uh, after God gives a curse to the serpent, he curses him. He's going to crawl on his belly in the dust all the days of his life. God makes this significant promise of judgment in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's the English Standard Version translation of the Bible. They use the word bruise here. Um, if, you, if you have an older translation, then you'll see that oftentimes the word crush gets used instead of bruised. And actually, my, my favorite translation of this, I think, gets across the Hebrew the best of all, is actually the NIV. Because the NIV says, he will crush your head while you strike his heel. And the reason why that is, I think, a better translation is because whoever crushes the serpent does it on the serpent's head. It's a death blow. If you strike the head, the head is a, something that, you know, without it, you're not going to live very long. And meanwhile, whoever in this prophecy it is that does the crushing 
also gets injured. So it's, it's a hobbling blow, an, an a, a painful, agonizing attack. But the, the truth is a, the foot is not a fatal blow. The foot is not a, a mortal injury that's going to kill you. And so God tells the serpent, this woman is going to have a seed who is going to crush his head. That's total defeat. Now, here's the important part. You see, you can read about this being about the children of the woman battling the children of the serpent. And maybe there's some ambiguity of that here because of that. But if you look at this word for seed here in the Hebrew, it is not a plural word. It's not the word seed, plural. It's the masculine singular seed, one seed, one offspring, one child of Eve that's ultimately going to do this. So this is a prophecy about a single child who's going to come from Eve. Now, here's the really interesting thing about that. He doesn't say it's the seed of Adam. Isn't that interesting? This is not called the seed of Adam. This, he calls this offspring specifically the offspring of Eve. And what makes that really stand out is this. In a patriarchal culture where genealogies are normally traced through the men of the family, it is very interesting and unusual that this is called the seed of Eve. God intentionally calls this, this the seed of the seed, her child. And here's what Derek Kidner points out. He points this out. He says, there's only one human being who was only the offspring of a woman. Um, this is a prophecy about Jesus. I was reading in John Owen this morning, actually, and John Owen was talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit actually conceived Christ of Mary. So in, in, in other words, he, he actually took the seed of Mary. He did not just create a brand new child in Mary, but actually took the seed of Mary, what we would call the egg, and fertilized it. And so this is Mary's child, but of course there's no man who's the husband. This is a prophecy about Jesus. This is the seed of the woman, the only person who was the seed of a woman alone. That is Jesus. And what God is telling the serpent about this in this moment is you're going to receive a fatal blow. A mortal blow to the head struck by Christ himself. Now this is... One area of the life and death of Christ I think many of us maybe don't think much about during the, the Christmas season especially. This idea that Jesus came to fight and defeat Satan. To be victorious in battle against him. We don't think of Jesus as a warrior. We think of Jesus as meek and mild. you know. But that's, that's not at all what Scripture presents to us. It presents scripture, Jesus to us in Scripture as a warrior. He came to save us from our sin. He came to bear the penalty of our sin. He came to give us righteousness. But he came to use those tools to defeat Satan and throw him down. One of the best places you find this is in 1 John chapter 3. John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He uses this destruction language. He uses this war language, this battle language to describe what this seed came into the world to do. And then three verses earlier, he says how he's going to do it. It says, he appeared to take away sins. And so you have these two statements, right? You have these two sides of the same coin. He came to take away sin and he came to destroy the works of the devil. And taking away sin is exactly how he's going to do that. 
What does destroying the works of the devil look like? It looks like taking away sin. God, John uses that battle language. Jesus fights. He destroys. In the words of Hebrews 2.14, Jesus came that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So think about this. Maybe, maybe this is new to you, to think of Jesus as a warrior. But there's this, there's this aspect of Christ's life and ministry that's engaged in warfare with the devil. And Paul looks at this angle of the cross in Colossians 2.15. He says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed them. He triumphed over them. You see that war language again. And that's what God is saying even back in Genesis 3.15 as well. Combat is coming, Eve. You are going to have a child, Eve, who is going to do battle with this serpent and destroy him forever. He tells the serpent, he shall crush your head. A mortal blow. Death. Destruction. Defeat. And God promises mankind, he especially promises the serpent, that his head will be crushed. And so because of that, what are they looking forward to? They're looking forward to the head crusher. They're looking forward to the head bruiser, depending on how you want to use that translated word. Third this morning, the serpent hears not just of a bruised serpent, but he hears of a bruised Savior. I really tried to emphasize the fact that the offspring of Eve would deal the death blow to the serpent, but that death blow still comes at a cost. So you see that also here in this verse, in verse 15. So God puts it this way. He says, you shall bruise his heel, or in the NIV, you shall strike his foot. So in other words, the seed of Eve isn't destroyed But he also doesn't get away scot-free either in this conflict, right? Jesus Christ may have been raised up, but he has scars. When he meets Thomas after the resurrection, what does he say to Thomas? He says, put your hand, your hand into my hands and feel the scars. Put your hand into my side and see that it's really me. Even though Jesus is raised up, he bears the scars of what he's endured. His death is quite real. Even though he's rescued from death, his death is quite real. His sufferings are absolutely agonizing. There is nothing about the sacrifice, the death of Jesus, that is make-believe or less than. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, victory is gained only through injury. It is in being crushed that Christ crushes Satan. The prince of death is defeated by means of Christ's defeat. Jesus, who suffered death, conquers. The devil, who wields death, succumbs to it. So you just picture it, right? The, the image that Eve is getting is, or that the serpent is getting is, his foot is going to come down on your head. You're going to bite him. You are going to harm him. But he's going to destroy you. So the question is, if Jesus died, why doesn't God say that his head will also be crushed? Well, if we know our Bibles well, we know that Christ paid the price, which was death. But we also know that after he did that, God raised Jesus up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You see, it turns out the serpent thought he had struck the fatal blow to Christ. And yet the good news is so much more. 
He did not. He is not dead. He is risen. Now, one of the pastor's favorite things is a captive audience. Um, because you kind of feel like you can say whatever you want. Um, that's why a lot of pastors like funerals instead of weddings. You know, um, with a funeral, you don't have any brides to disappoint <laughs> if you say something wrong. Uh, you know, you, there's not as much pressure necessarily. And yet at, at funerals, you have a captive audience. You have people who maybe even wouldn't usually listen to a preacher preach. They wouldn't usually listen to a sermon. And yet they will sit and they will listen uh, to preaching at a funeral. You see, you have this freedom to say what needs to be said to people who really need to listen to it. And, and this is the thing that I love here. The gospel here is a promise buried in a judgment that Satan has to hear. Satan is a captive audience for God at this point. He has to listen in on the message that God has for him. He has to endure the hearing of the gospel. Satan has to listen to God's word. I love it so much. Satan has to hear it. He has to hear this promise. As old as the human race, as long as the human race is around, one thing we know is Satan has heard the gospel and he hates it. He is required to listen to every word of what God says. And the words are all judgment for the serpent. There is no comfort for him here. There is no silver lining for him. There is no happy afterthought that Satan can draw out of what happens here. It is all raw judgment. It's like God is preaching Satan's funeral for all of us to hear, including Adam and Eve. They're just standing there listening to Satan's eulogy in this moment. There's something significant, I think, to the fact that before God comes to Adam and Eve, before he deals comfort to them, before he gives them any sort of assurance, first and foremost, he is committed to speaking these words of judgment against the devil. You can derive a few things from this, but I think one of the most important is this. Before God is concerned with us, before he is concerned with what we need, he loves us. But before he is concerned with what we need, his first and foremost thought is to judge his enemies to clear his own name. Ezekiel 36, 22 is a passage about God judging this nation. And he says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Why is he bringing judgment? For the sake of his holy name. It is actually not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm doing this. He makes this very clear. And I think that we could fairly say that that's God's judgment and uh, motivation in saving us as well. He, He would say to you, it's not because of you, O Christian, that I saved you, but for the sake of my holy name. It's almost like God is primarily fixated on punishing the serpent And then as a bonus, he lets Adam and Eve over here. Oh, yeah, this is going to mean good things for you, too. I'm going to send a savior to rescue you. Many times I think we get so fixated. I hope we get fixated on the love of God for sinners. But we forget that the cross is really about protecting God's own honor. Whenever whenever somebody who has sinned, is punished for his as not punished for his sin. There's this potential charge that can be made against God. God doesn't care about his holiness. Look, he just let that person get away with murder. 
The charge could be made. God doesn't punish sin. God doesn't care about sin. God is the kind of judge to wink at evil and sin and injustice. That charge could be made. And the cross shows us that before all these other things, God is absolutely committed to defending his honor, defending his holiness, and defending the thoroughness of his demand for goodness. And so what does that mean? It means the serpent must be punished. The serpent must be defeated. He must be thrown down. So it isn't that our salvation doesn't matter. It isn't that God didn't plan to save us from all eternity. But in the scheme of things, God's honor is the more important and the more urgent than you or I being shown grace. Do you love God so much that you would be willing to be condemned in order for him to be let free of the charge of being an unjust God? He's going to give us grace, but he is obsessive in defending his own holiness. And we see that here. What does he do? He addresses the sin before he speaks the words of grace to the bystanders. The bruised relationship is repaired by a bruised serpent and a bruised Savior. You might say to yourself at this point, this is an odd text to begin a series of sermons that are going to be preached during Advent. There's nothing about this that feels Christmas. Where are the gifts? Where are the wise men? Where is the star? Where's the virgin with child? Well, those things come later. But part of the Advent season is this feeling of expectation, this posture of looking forward, of sort of reenacting that experience of looking forward to a Savior. And what we see here this morning is the first time in humanity that we experience the sensation of looking forward to a Savior. This is where humanity's wait for a Savior really begins. Let's pray. Lord, as we fix our gaze on Christ once again, would you help us to see him with new eyes? Perhaps. Perhaps with the eyes of Adam and Eve who found themselves so badly and so desperately in need of a Savior at this moment in their lives. Would you show us Christ in the midst of our own immense need, fixing our eyes most especially on the greatness of his provision for us? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.